Well, if you have a Bible in front of you, please do turn back to Haggai chapter 1 as we come to study it together. And as we do so, I wonder if you noticed in the last couple of years that we seem to have entered a slight moment. You might have missed it. It didn't last very long. But about this time two years ago, a moment of national reflection. We don't tend to do that in Scotland, but we have this moment after that first initial flood of lockdown and COVID. We saw lots of newspaper articles, magazine articles, BBC news website articles along the lines of what lessons have we learned from lockdown. And usually those articles, they would encourage us to value our friendships more, to make the most of opportunities to be happy, to take pleasure in all the little things that we have been taking for granted until COVID took them all away from us. It seems that we did have this brief moment of national reflection and sadly it seems to have passed as quickly as it arrived as we've come out of the most serious waves of COVID. But even even as our, our nation moves on from reflection, maybe this is a good moment for God's church to pause and reflect too. As we get back to what we hope and pray is increasing normality as we go forward. Maybe it's a good time for us to pause and reflect on what the next few years, what the next few decades will look like for serving the Lord here in Scotland. What are the things that we need to take stock of as a church? What should our priorities be in our service of the Lord? Those are good questions to ask at any time. And they're good questions which the book of Haggai demands of the reader. But we'll see, we even saw as I read earlier, this is a book which draws the reader to consider our ways. Now, Haggai might seem like an odd choice. I mentioned earlier that it's not many people's favourite book and it's a little bit longer to find it in our Bibles. I usually have to use the contents page at the front to find it. But actually, I want us to see this evening that this, this book about a 6th century BC building project has much to say to and to teach God's people here in the 21st century in Scotland. Because far from being just concerned with the material, the rebuilding of the temple, Haggai is a book which gets right to the heart of what it means to serve God. And so to that end, it's a profoundly challenging book. It's one in which the Lord draws each and every one of us to reflect carefully on where our priorities really lie. It's a book which we might find slightly uncomfortably exposes the attitudes of our hearts. But I really hope and pray that it's also a book which, as we study it together over these next four Sunday evenings, will encourage all of us to get excited about being involved in God's great building project, a project of which God himself is the chief architect and the master craftsman, and in which it's therefore a great privilege to share and to be involved in. So that's where we want to get to by this time, four weeks' time. And we're going to start this evening by considering our ways along with God's people in Haggai's day. We'll look at it under three headings. And the first of them is this. God condemns wrong priorities. Verses 1 to 6. God condemns wrong priorities. Just read with me again verses 1 to 2. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So, important bit of context to the book of Haggai. Uh, We might know if we are familiar with the Old Testament that God's people have had a series of pretty rubbish kings leading them into idolatry and away from right worship of the Lord. And so the punishment that God has allowed to fall on his people is that they've been taken into exile in Babylon. And we read, though, in the book of Ezra that when the Babylonians are knocked out of power by the Persians, Cyrus, the king of Persia, allows the Israelites to return to their land. In fact, he doesn't just allow them to do it, he issues a decree telling them to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Now, that should have been the most amazing news possible to the Israelites in exile. They probably couldn't have believed, couldn't have believed their luck, couldn't have even hoped or wished that that might happen, and yet it did. Uh, To contextualise that, to try and get into the mindset of what that must have been like. I'm sure we've all been grieved in the last few months by what's been happening in Ukraine. Now just imagine a decree issued that the fighting has stopped, that the Russians have been defeated, that it's safe to go home to go back to those cities which so many people have been displaced from and to see friends and family and loved ones again. We can imagine the joy that Ukrainians in the exile must feel if and when that day comes. We pray it comes quickly. That would have been something like what the Israelites should have been feeling as they're told to get back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But we come to the book of Haggai, about 40 years after that decree has been issued. And now Cyrus's grandson, Darius, he's sitting on the throne, and the temple is still lying in ruins. That excitement and enthusiasm, which must surely have accompanied the Israelites on the way back to Jerusalem, well, it's given way to complete inertia and apathy. And so already in verse 2, it's a bit ironic. The people are saying that the time hasn't come, more literally that the time isn't ripe for building the temple. But we, the reader, know that it's been the right time to build the temple for the last 40 years. So why haven't they been getting on with it? Well, as we see, it's because they've got their priorities all wrong. We read on from verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Can you see there how God is exposing the hypocrisy of the people? They are saying, it's not really the right time to build God's house. And he challenges them through his prophet. Is it a time for you to work on your own houses? It's a rhetorical device. It's a really convicting question for them to reflect on. You see, they are more than happy to kick the can down the road when it comes to building the temple. That couldn't wait. There'll always be another day for temple repair. But when it comes to looking after their own material comforts, well, there's no time like the present. That's the significance of panelled houses. It's not that they're focusing on essentials of giving themselves some shelter to stay in. God's not saying there's anything wrong with nice, comfy houses, but while there's nothing wrong with with that in and of itself, he's exposing the hypocrisy of their priorities. It's their house before God's house. 
It's money and time spent at B&Q and doing the wallpapering before what God has commanded of them. Uh, I think if you've ever studied at university, you'll have kind of run the gauntlet of private renting and uh, the kind of varied quality of accommodation you can find. I think of, I mean, I can tell you some horror stories that I've had myself, and maybe I'll do that later if you want to know them. But one of the particularly bad examples I can think of, a friend of mine was lodging somewhere uh, in Newcastle. And he had a, a landlord who kind of had said, well, well, by the time you move in, the house will be finished. And so my friend moved in, lo and behold, the house wasn't finished, the bathroom hadn't been plumbed in, the living room was a complete actual building site with the floor not quite finished, things like that. And he was in there for probably a good few months before those jobs got done and was kind of calling his landlord saying, is there any progress on the the plumbing and the floors? And he came back one day uh, from work and he saw his landlord's car outside the house. So far so good, must be here to do some work. He came in, couldn't find him in the bathroom, couldn't find him in the living room walked through the house and saw that his, his landlord was standing in the back garden and my friend went out to see him and said, oh, I'm glad you're here. Which shade of green do you think suits the shed better? I was trying to work out which colour you should paint the shed. And my friend was thinking, how on earth can that be your priority? I don't have a working toilet and here you are like quibbling over which shade of green to paint your shed. How can that take priority over this? Well, there's something similar going on here in Israel. How on earth could the plush new wallpaper of their own houses be more of a priority than the bricks and mortar of the temple? How on earth can the time not be right for laying the foundations of a temple when they've got plenty of time to lay down hardwood flooring in their own kitchens? That's what the Lord is trying to get his people to reflect on here. Verse 5, consider your way. Just think about whether your priorities are really in the right place here. You see, though, that as well as considering their attitude towards the temple, the Lord is also drawing them to consider the knock-on effects of their neglect of that work. Verses 5 to 11 serve as a bit of a wake-up call for Israel. Let's read on. Verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your way. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Israel's attitude towards the temple is actually just a symptom of a wider disease of materialism that's sunk into them. They seem to be neglecting God and his concerns and instead making a heart priority of what they can grow and eat and drink and wear and earn. And yet amazingly, with that attitude, they've hit a bit of a snag. It seems that their harvests are liable to fail when there's bad weather. The food and drink they have, they're not plentiful enough to stave off their hunger and thirst. The clothes that they're buying, they're not doing a good enough job at keeping them warm. And the wages that they're chasing after disappear as quickly as they're earned. And they're not enough to achieve the lifestyle that they want. Now, these things ought to be enough to wake Israel up. Israel had been told in God's law, in places like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that if they don't give God the honour he's due, these are the kinds of things that will happen. The law says that if you don't honour God, your harvest will fail. You won't have enough to eat and drink. 
your wages won't stretch far enough. But just in case they're in any doubt, God draws it out even more explicitly in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labours. God makes it so clear for them here. These bad harvests, this economic downturn they're experiencing, it's not just a coincidence. These are the effects of covenant curse. God is withholding material blessing from his people as a punishment for their complete disregard of him and his priorities. So there's this kind of tragic irony in their situation. They've got the logic reversed. They've got it all wrong. See, they are thinking to themselves, well, I can't focus my attention on God's work yet until I'm secure enough with a nice house and a good harvest and plenty to eat and drink and wear. But actually, it's precisely because of this attitude that the Lord doesn't allow them to benefit from those very material things that they're putting their ultimate trust in. And so, as we think about what these verses mean for us, we too are being drawn to consider our way. As we go through this series in Haggai, we're going to think a lot about what it means for us to build God's house in the 21st century. In the New Testament, God's people are described as living stones being built together into a temple with God dwelling among us, dwelling in the heart of every believer. And so, as Christians today, we need to be active in building up God's house by building up God's people. Building them up spiritually through discipleship, through encouragement, through teaching and encouraging one another with the word. And building it up numerically through evangelism, through telling other people about Jesus and inviting them to consider the gospel for themselves. And so in that regard, as we consider our ways this evening, I wonder if the Lord is revealing to us any ways in which our own priorities aren't in the right place. Are there ways in which we find ourselves guilty of throwing up panelled houses at the cost of building God's house? I'm sure we're all feeling the pinch at the minute with this economic minefield we're all navigating. I filled up the car in town yesterday. It nearly brought a tear to my eye to see that price going up and up and up. And at times like this, it's so easy to think, well, I can't really commit to any more Christian giving to church or to mission or to evangelism partners at the minute. And yet to think nothing of investing money in a new kitchen or putting some decking down in the garden. Or to be unthinking about spending a decent sum of money on a foreign holiday, but reluctant to put some loose change in the church collection. Or here's one for me personally. To get really nervous about setting up a standing order for a mission partner or for a church work. And to think, I'm not sure if I can quite afford that. I don't really know if it's the right time for that. But to think nothing of taking out an account for Netflix or Amazon Prime or Spotify. That's financially. But what about in other ways? It's easy to not just disobey God, but to think we can defer our obedience in this area. It's easy to think, well, you know, when I'm retired, that's when I'll really have time to be involved in building God's house. 
or when I just get the kids a bit more settled at school or when they go off to uni, that's when I'll have time to see more people from church and to encourage them. Or even when I just get through this particularly busy spell, then I'll be in a more settled position so I can make church life more of a priority. I remember speaking to a ministry couple, probably 20 or 30 years older than Judy and myself recently, and they were saying that it took about 15 years of marriage within ministry for his wife to say, do you think we can stop calling this a busy season now? Life doesn't get less busy, does it? We kid ourselves in thinking that there's a hurdle to overcome and then we'll have plenty of time, but it never comes, does it? So maybe even more subtly than, than looking towards those horizons that don't come, I wonder if there are ways that even within the life of church we can get things slightly in the wrong order. Now I want to be very upfront about the facts so that I don't get misunderstood in saying this. I am very, very pro-church renovation projects. It is good, brothers and sisters, to steward what God has given us. It is good to try and make the most of the meeting spaces he's blessed us with so that we can use them to serve as many people as possible. And so I'm very pro laying down new carpets in church or refurbishing the kitchen or installing new toilets. Those are all brilliant things to do and there's nothing wrong with them. But I do wonder sometimes if there are many churches up and down Scotland that invest a disproportionate amount of time and energy and money in those kinds of things. Churches which have endless meetings about how best to refurbish the kitchen or whether or not to rip out the pews or get some chairs or whether or not they should move to a bigger building. And yet, in spite of all the time and money and energy invested in those things, they don't want to invest in more workers in the harvest field. I think it's a great tragedy to think of how many beautiful, ornate, immaculately preserved church buildings there are in Scotland which are now empty because at some stage the people in them took their eyes off God's priorities and focused instead on their own concerns. When I first preached through the book of Haggai I did so in a quite small church in Angus and the first time I arrived there you put it in the sat nav and you're driving along and you think oh there it is this is lovely big church building that must be it and the sat nav takes you right outside it then you get out of the car and you look at the sign in this building and it says tattoo parlor you think well that doesn't sound right and then you realize that there's a little sign next to this big church with an arrow pointing around the back and you go around the back and there's a tiny little scout hut and that's where the church meets they have no connection with that church building it's just incidental that they're meeting and the scout hut around the back of it Now, I know nothing about the history of that church in that place. I don't know how they ended up as a tattoo parlor. But I wonder if in it we find a cautionary tale. I wonder if churches which invest lots of time and energy into the wallpapering are at least more likely to end up as tattoo parlors than those that invest in word ministry. Friends, once again, I want to get a couple of things very clear. Our situation is very different from Israel. We, wonderfully, are not in danger of covenant curse because the Lord Jesus has borne that curse for us. And so what I'm fundamentally not saying this evening is that if you find life is a bit hard, then just give more money to the church and God will richly bless you. 
That will be a prosperity gospel and it's a lie. There is a place for caution. There is a place for good and sensible stewardship of our money and of keeping our houses in order. That's only right and biblical. And there's a place too for being committed to and giving our time to work and to family life and to friendships. That's only right as well. And all those things I mentioned earlier, foreign holidays and loft conversions and nicer church buildings, those are good things. I came when I preached in that church at Angus on this passage. This dear old lady came up to me afterwards looking really ashen-faced and guilty, saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I've just, I've just laid down some decking in my garden. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Decking's great in the garden. I wish I had some. Nothing wrong with investing money in those kinds of things. We don't need to feel guilty about them. But this passage is drawing us to consider our way. This passage is drawing us to give careful thought to where our priorities lie and whether or not we're at all guilty of turning some of those good things, those wonderful things, into God things, allowing them to occupy the central place in our hearts and our minds which ought to be reserved for God and his glory. If we're at all guilty of thinking, well, true happiness and contentment comes in getting that stuff rather than in knowing and loving and serving God. If that's the case, then the Lord, in his kindness, through Haggai, is drawing us to repent. But there's a second way in which God draws Israel to consideration here. It's not just reflection, but also active obedience. And that's our second point. God commands right priorities. He condemns wrong priorities, and he commands right priorities. Verses 7 and 8, let me read those again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. As I say, God doesn't stop but revealing and condemning Israel's disobedience and asking them to reflect on it. He directs them to very practically, very actively shift their priorities. It's consider your ways and go up. Go to the mountains, bring timber, build my house. And he outlines for them why they should do this. As we said earlier, the temple itself, that's not the real issue. It's whether or not they're really concerned with him and his priorities. God is glorified, God is honoured, God takes pleasure in his people doing the work that he has brought them to. And just note a few things about these commands. First of all, note that everyone is included in the command. The Lord, through Haggai, he's not just addressing the leaders or the men or the young. Everyone is included. And so some dear, sweet, elderly Israelites sitting on their deck chairs in their gardens and watching all the people going by up to the mountains are thinking, it's so lovely that the young people are so passionate about building the temple, would actually be sitting in disobedience. Everyone should be involved in this work. Then second, notice how active everyone should be. God could have just said, build my house. They'd have known exactly what that involved. But he draws out a wee bit. He dwells on the activity involved. Go up and bring timber and build. Everyone is called, not just to personal piety and reflection, but to active corporate obedience. And finally, note too how God is really really clear that their aim in all of this is to give him the honour he is due. 
He takes pleasure in, he is glorified, he is honoured as his people do the work that he has brought them to. So as we move towards application, we know that the New Testament teaches us exactly the same things, that God's glory is to be of our chief concern. And the most sustaining motivation for temple building is God's glory itself. If we make anything else our motivation in serving him and building his house, it won't last. If we're motivated by guilt, it won't last. If we're motivated by weary obligation, it won't last. If we're motivated by God and his glory, he enables us to keep going even when it's hard. So once again, let's consider our ways. What are the things that motivate us to keep going in our temple building work, our work of serving and of growing the church? For some, it can be the desire to get a good reputation. A good reputation as a church or a good reputation personally. For some, it can be the fear of letting people that we love down. If it's those things, then we can easily see the work petering out. Whereas if it's the desire to see God honoured, God glorified as his church grows, then we'll keep going even when construction feels hard and it feels like it's taking a long time. And I also think that honour for God will help us to see that temple building really is the work of all of God's people. That we all need to be active in getting on with it. It's not enough for the leaders of God's people to have the right priorities. All the people need to share them. Uh, a couple of years ago, my big sister was building a house. Maybe some people here have built their own house recently, and you'll relate to this then, that they always promise it'll be done by this date, and that date gets pushed further and further away as the day draws near, maybe especially now with all these backlogs and getting materials and supplies. And so my sister and brother-in-law, they were having lots of increasingly agitated phone calls and email exchanges with the developer, trying to hurry them along. And I think there are plenty of churches in this country who treat their minister as the property developer or the project foreman. I'm sure there are lots of churches who, when they have a vacancy, they're really great at laboring for God's house. They're really brilliant at setting up outreach programs and Bible studies and pastoral visits and pulpit supply and caring for one another and building up God's house in that way. Those kinds of attitudes we thought about this morning in Philippians, if no one else will do it, I will. There's churches that are full of attitudes like that when they have a vacancy. That's a brilliant thing. What's less brilliant is that sometimes the second the new minister is ordained, churches can put their feet up and think, well, that's great. We'll now need him to get on with all that stuff. That's his job now. But friends, remember that personal piety isn't quite enough in terms of what God commands here. Building God's house is the work of everyone. If we were to read together the book of Ephesians, we'd see that wonderfully God provides certain people set aside for full-time ministry. So praise God for godly ministers and evangelists and elders. But, this is the other thing we see in the book of Ephesians, he uses the ministry of those people. He uses them to encourage the whole church so that he can use everyone in the church body, the church family, speaking the truth in love to grow and to build his people. It's a work for everyone to be involved in. 
That also leads us nicely onto our last point, and more briefly. God commends the right response. He condemns wrong priorities. He commands right priorities, and he commends the right response of the people, which we read in verses 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. I just want us to note the order here. The leaders obey, the people fear, God empowers, and all the people work. The leaders obey, the people fear, God empowers, and all the people together work. So here we see God's very gracious activity through Haggai the prophet. It's through him that he kindly, gently brings a lethargic and disobedient people to a right fear of him. And then as they repent, assures them that he himself is ultimately the one driving forward this work of building his house. That's really encouraging. It's really reassuring, actually. If part one has exposed wrong priorities in us, well, the right response here is being modeled. Fear God and obey his charge to make a priority of building his people. Maybe some of the things in the first part of this passage were quite hard to hear, maybe quite painful or sobering or challenging. Well, if that's the case, then it's reassuring to see that God is so gracious in dealing with erstwhile people, in making them aware of their sin, of drawing them to renewed fear and obedience and then using them in his service. God's purpose for his people back then and for us this evening is not to have anyone wallowing in guilt, but to graciously draw us to repentance so that we can walk again with him in his light with renewed priorities and renewed joy in serving and glorifying him. So what's truly wonderful about these last few verses of chapter 1 is the reassurance of God's presence, the reassurance of God's empowerment as his people get on with the work of building up his house. That's reassuring because one of the things that can make us reluctant to get building is thinking, what can I do? What do I have to offer anybody? Isn't it better to leave discipleship and evangelism to the professionals? I've got nothing to contribute. And so it's very reassuring for all of us to see that God empowers the building of his house. Ultimately, it's his work. To reference the book of Ephesians again, there we see that God uses the very simple, everyday ministry of all of his people speaking the truth in love to build up his church. And so Amazingly, even when we ourselves don't feel particularly special or significant, 
God promises to use us, even us, to work in us and through us to build his people, numerically through evangelism and spiritually through discipleship. It won't always feel like it, but every word of truth we speak in love to a struggling brother or sister, every stuttering and nervous explanation of the gospel we present to our unbelieving friends and family, every inarticulate prayer that we offer for the growth of younger members of our church family, every time we turn up on a grieving brother or sister's doorstep with a lasagna in one hand and a Bible in the other, not knowing what we're going to say, but trying our best to bring them comfort and hope, all of these things are vital wonderful outworkings of God's work to build his temple, to build his house. Our time is gone for this evening, but I think that thought is a great place to end this introduction to Haggai. I said at the start that God himself is the great architect and master craftsman of his eternal building project to grow and to build together a people for his own possession. It is his work and it is a privilege, a wonderful privilege that he uses even sorely lacking workmen like me and like you to bring it about. So friends, brothers, sisters, let's consider our ways and with God's help and with his joy in our hearts, let's get building. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer? Our Father God, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us to consider our ways, that you would reveal in us, in our own hearts, any ways in which we need to be challenged, any ways in which our own priorities are in the wrong order. We pray that you would bring us to right repentance and fear of you. And we pray too that you would help us to have renewed desire to build your church and renewed confidence in what you yourself are doing as you Use and equip your saints to build your people, to build your house, and to glorify your name. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.